Colossians chapter 1. Let's pray together. Father, it is good that we are here. It is good. You have called us out of the world and you've placed us into the body of Christ. You have told us that we should come together. We should consider one another to stir up love and good works. We recognize this is so important that we not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. And it's especially true now as we see the day approaching. And so we're here because of obedience. We're here because of your kindness. We're here to worship you. We're here to build one another up. We're here to rally around the truth of the gospel. Help us this morning in every element of our time together that we would honor you, that we would surrender our heart and mind to you, that you might have your way in us. We pray this in the name of our matchless Savior, Jesus. Amen. We've all heard the expression, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, some car companies don't get that concept. From 2004 through 2010, the Honda Odyssey was a beautiful minivan, and they tried to make it better in 2011, and they made it look kind of like a spaceship. Kind of, They stretched it out, and it just looks kind of funny. It's not the only car company that has done that. Many car companies over the years have made these kinds of decisions. If you look at a, a Chevy Tahoe or a GMC Yukon, until this year, they're, they're beautiful things. And then this year, they like made this thing look like a big giant refrigerator on wheels. It's just this big square thing. It's like, what are you thinking? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Now, anytime you have some of these illustrations, you have to include something about food, because food is important. I don't know if you've ever been to the Cheesecake Factory. If you can afford it, you should go. They used to have, well, they still have the meal. They have a meal on the menu called chicken and biscuits. It doesn't sound like much, but it is a thing of beauty. It is. It's outstanding. And every, I, I had a really difficult time ever ordering anything but chicken and biscuits. It's that good. And they changed the recipe. They broke it. <laughs> if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Then on the other hand, there are some things that are broken and need fixing. Now, I hope this doesn't offend any of you. I don't know if you guys are Volvo lovers or not, but the old Volvo, oh, please. It's just like square and ugly. It's like a box driving down the street. But they recognized that it was kind of broken, so they tweaked it. They fixed it. And like you look at a Volvo drive down the street now, it's like, that is a nice-looking vehicle. It was broken, so they fixed it. Well, as we think about this concept, and I don't want you to mull too long on those illustrations because they are just to whet our appetite, what we will affirm this morning is that human beings, all human beings, need fixing. We need fixing. The good news is God can turn the hostile 
into the holy. God can turn the hostile into the holy. We will talk about a term this morning. It's on the screen behind me. The term is reconciliation. Maybe you're familiar with the term, and maybe you're not. But let's simplify it right down. It's not a very complicated concept. Reconciliation is the process whereby parties who are at odds come to dwell in peace. Parties that are at odds come to dwell at peace. It is not just the absence of conflict. It is not just the absence of hostility. It's from hostility to peace. Peace is harmony. Peace is togetherness. Peace is unity. And so reconciliation is taking parties that are at odds and making them in harmony or at peace. And so this morning, as we consider just a few verses of Scripture from Colossians 1, 21-23, we want to note three realities about reconciliation. Let's take a look first at the passage, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Well, the first reality we want to note about reconciliation is this. Everyone needs reconciliation. Everyone needs reconciliation. Friend, you are not born into the kingdom of God When you're born, you are not born a Christian. So if nothing happens to you from the time you're born until the time you die, you are not one of God's children. We're not born into this thing. Well, I I was born in a Christian home and I was raised in a Christian church and I went to all these services and and I read my Bible. That does not save you. Everyone needs reconciliation. He starts this passage off and he says, and you, this whole church, and you, who once were alienated and enemies. That is true about everyone. And so what we'll note first here is our condition without reconciliation. This is what our condition is without reconciliation. We're born as those who are alienated. The word alienated, well, what does that mean? It means estranged. Estranged or separated. The Bible makes this concept very clear. It doesn't leave any room for any other decision. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, there is none righteous. Oh, there's more to it. No, not one. Now, to say there is none righteous, isn't that sufficient? But God wanted to let, really let us know. No, not even one. 
The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20, For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. And Paul then reiterates the concept again in Romans 3, in verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We recognize the Bible makes no... It pulls no punches in this matter. Everyone is born, and they're born as sinners. The question is, what does that sin do? Well, Isaiah answers that question very nicely. In Isaiah 59, in verse 2, he says this, But your iniquities, listen carefully, your iniquities have separated you from your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you. There we have alienation. What's the problem? Or should I say, who's the problem? This guy. I'm the problem. I'm estranged or alienated. What's the reason? Because of my sin. This is the condition of the Colossian church at one point. This is the condition of every human being at one point. Which is why we say everyone needs reconciliation. He doesn't just say we're alienated or estranged. He also says we're enemies. Now that's pretty strong, isn't it? The concept of being an enemy is someone who is hostile toward or opposing God. He says, and you once were alienated and you once were hostile toward toward God. Well, maybe you think, well, not. My whole life, I've, you know, I really wanted to please Him, and I went to church, and I wanted to obey, and I wanted to do these things, and I, I really, I don't have this hostility toward God, I promise. Well, I, I want to tell you something, and if you'll listen to God's Word, you'll know that, that this statement is true, that every one of us were hostile toward God. Every one of us. In Isaiah 64, and verse 6, this is a very familiar passage, God's word says this, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Now I want you to really think about that. Our righteousnesses. He doesn't say all your wicked works are like filthy rags. That would also be true. It's just not surprising, right? Like to say, boy, that that act of sin was bad. You'd be like, yeah, yeah. But he says, all of the good things you try to do, those are also bad. You come out of the womb and you're like, yeah, I love God and I want to obey God. And God says, all your righteousnesses amount to filthy rags. Hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? What is sad, what is tragic is that so many people are trying to gain God's approval by doing good things while they are ignoring what God tells them is the solution for them to be accepted. Can I say that again? What is tragic is that so many are trying to gain God's approval by doing good things, all the while they're ignoring what God tells them is the solution for being accepted. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6, 
to the praise of the glory of His grace. The grace by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. How are we accepted by God? Well, because we we have come to obey Him. We have come to church. We have given to the poor. We have helped those who cannot help themselves. No. That is not going to gain anyone approval with God. Are those things good? Sure. Are those things wrong? No. Will they gain your acceptance with God? No. Look. The, the praise here is to the glory of His grace. God's grace is God supplying something that I don't deserve. God's grace is what makes me accepted. And the avenue that that grace took was God's Son, Jesus Christ, His Beloved. We're accepted in the Beloved. Now, continue to think with me for a moment. Three times in the New Testament. Three times. The Bible writers make reference to people who do not obey the Gospel. They do not obey the Gospel. Well, what does that mean? Hear the Gospel cry. You know what the Gospel cry is? You, and I mean, when I say you, I mean you, (laughs) you, all of us, are sinners. You, are helpless. You cannot, through any means of your own, gain God's approval. You cannot make your brokenness unbroken. You cannot fix yourself. You're in desperate need of what God has done through Jesus Christ when He hung on the cross and became sin for us, even though He knew no sin. When God poured out His wrath on Jesus Christ, He was pouring out His wrath against my sin. Jesus became my sin. That I, when I come to know Jesus Christ as my Savior, might become His righteousness. It's a a wonderful exchange. But so many do not obey the Gospel they will not recognize that their efforts will not gain them acceptance with God. They do not recognize that what Jesus Christ has done on the cross of Calvary, and when God raised Him from the dead, they will not recognize that that is sufficient to obtain for them a perfect and permanent holy record with God. They will not accept it. They do not obey the Gospel. Everyone needs reconciliation. So there are many who while seeking to gain God's approval through their own efforts, are actually working in opposition to Him. God says, come to me this way. And they, like Cain, say, no, I have a different offering for you. That's, while it seems like they're working for God, and it seems like they're offering something good to God, they're actually working in opposition toward God. They are hostile toward God. They are enemies of God. Because God says, I have done everything you need. I have provided the way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I've given you everything. And you want to find a different way. That's working in opposition 
to God. That's being at enmity with Him. So there are so many who, while they're trying to gain God's approval through their own efforts, are actually working in opposition to Him. They are hostile to His loving appeal. The Gospel is indeed for everyone. The Gospel has implications for everyone. There is no one who is not responsible for the message of the Gospel. No one. Alright, so we're talking about this enmity. We're talking about an estrangement and a hostility toward God. And this demonstration of hostility can take various forms. And I want to talk about that for just a moment because it says here in Colossians 1 and verse 21, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Okay, now we have some, a little, we've, we've advanced the story a little bit. By wicked works. What are wicked works? Well, we can think of some, right? Uh, I, I want to think about Matthew. You remember him, one of the disciples? He was a tax collector. You might want to ask, so who did he steal money from? That's a wicked work. Hmm. How about another of the disciples, Simon the Zealot? The question you want to ask about Simon the Zealot is, who did he kill? Because the zealots were known for entering into the fray with swords in their cloaks, coming up behind people that were on the opposite party and slicing them through, putting the dagger back in and taking off. Well, by the way, there were no real good forensics back then, so they kind of got away with it. How many people did Simon the Zealot kill? That's a wicked work. Do you remember... Do you remember the prostitute who anointed Jesus' feet? Were her sins forgiven? What were her wicked works like? So we have some wicked works to find for us, but, but I want to remind you of someone else. Anyone here remember the name Saul of Tarsus? You remember that name? Do we call him something different? We call him Paul, don't we? Thirteen of our New Testament letters were penned by him or through him in some fashion. He, he was the, the channel through which God, the Spirit, worked. This penman of God, Paul. What was he like? Well, he called himself a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He exceeded all of his peers. He was as good a Pharisee as a Pharisee can be. And you'll remember that he said, I counted it all loss. Loss. You'll also remember these wicked works of his. He called himself and it's true, the chiefest of sinners. Wicked works. What were those wicked works? Religion, righteous deeds, trying to gain God's approval some other way than the way that God has given us. He did not obey the gospel. Those were his wicked works. So I say to you again, everyone needs 
reconciliation. But the good news is that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is sufficient to provide reconciliation for whatever type of wicked works you may be guilty of. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is sufficient for whatever type of guilty of of wicked work you may be guilty of it, it's the 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 type of wicked work is not the issue everyone needs reconciliation you want to know why because everyone's broken well that leads us to the second reality regarding reconciliation and that's this god brings about reconciliation. God brings about reconciliation. Look at verse 21 again. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled. Who did this work? Are you guys alive today? Who did this work? God did this work. God reconciled them. Did they reconcile themselves? No. God reconciled them. God is the one who brings about reconciliation. How did He do it? It says in verse 22, in the body of His flesh through death. This is the work of Jesus Christ. He brought those who were hostile to Him into a relationship of peace by the blood of Jesus Christ's cross. This is what God has done. He took us who knew all kinds of sin and He took Him who knew no sin and He flip-flopped our accounts. You ever sin? If you say no, you're lying. You just sinned. (laughs) Caught you, didn't I? You have a record of sin. But because of Christ, who became sin for you, that record is expunged, and you have a new record, a record bound up in the person of Jesus Christ, His righteous record. It resides on your account if you know Christ is your Savior. God did this work. He made peace through the blood of His cross. Reconciliation produces a complete change in our standing, which is why in verse 22 we see this glorious statement It says at the the end of verse 21, Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. He reconciled us so that when he presents us, we come forth. We are holy, we are blameless, and we are above reproach. I want to talk about this for a couple of minutes. This is good, good stuff. God's Word, talking about people like us. Now, what kind of requirements does God have for heaven? Well, if your good outweighs your bad, you heard that one a million times, haven't you? I'm sorry to say, and I don't take any pleasure in this, really, I don't. That's wrong. That's not right. That standard, that scale thing, it's, it's not biblical. It's not God's standard. Here's God's standard. Look at Jesus. Can you in your mind's eye see the record of Jesus? Is it spotless? 
Is it perfect? That's God's standard for heaven. How do I know? Well, look at 1 Peter 1 on the screen behind me. Verses 15 and 16, very familiar passage. But as He who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Do you feel insufficient for that standard? Yes, you do. You feel insufficient for that standard. But God says, yet now He has reconciled you through the body of His death to present you holy. Sufficient. If you've trusted Christ, you've been made sufficient for this standard. This is good news. How about this one? Blameless. To present you blameless. Jude 24 says this, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. Look at who God is saying will make you faultless. Who's going to bring you to this place and present you as faultless? He will. He's doing this. God is responsible for reconciliation. God is the one who reconciles. We don't reconcile ourselves. He does it. Divine action for my benefit. Alright, so we've got holy. God presents us as holy. God presents us as blameless. So we're meeting these criteria because of Jesus. Now, this last one, above reproach. I want, to, I want you to turn with me for this one. I want you to think this one through. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, here Paul opens the letter by saying, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. Who is he praising right now? He's praising them. He's thanking God for them because of what God has done in their lives. That you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also, listen, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is a strong statement. This is a strong statement. He says, God has done this. He's confirmed you to the end. He will present you faultless at His presence. This is the the statement. And he says, God is faithful. He'll, He'll get this done. Okay. Who's he talking to? The Corinthians. Did you ever read through the book of Corinthians? Do they have any problems? Do you think any broken people in the city of Corinth? Do they have any divisions among them? Might they have been called carnal? Hmm. Ever, were they ever called puffed up? You hear about that one? Oh, you come together not for the better, but for the worse? All right. He's talking about a church that he said, God has confirmed them to the end. That God is faithful. God is doing this. There's no doubt they'll be presented faultless. This is what he says about them. And one of the chastisements that he gives them is, when you come together to, to celebrate, you're actually making things worse, not better. 
Could you have a worse condemnation against you as a church? When you get together, it's just a mess. You really can't get a worse condemnation, I don't think, for a church that like, is puffed up and, and doesn't, doesn't deal with sin in the camp. They've got some real problems. And yet this is the same group of people that he's saying, I've confirmed you to the end. Who reconciles? Well, certainly not the Corinthians. Nor you or I. We don't do this. We, we don't get the job done. It's not, it's not possible. Why do we have such confidence that we, with all of our selfishness, self-righteousness, covetousness, and many other things we could add to the list, why do we have confidence that we will be presented perfect? Because it's God who reconciles. And when God does something, he does it perfectly. Do you believe that? Listen, we're looking through this passage of, of Scripture. We're looking at what God's Word has to say, and He first essentially tells us everyone needs reconciliation. For you were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. We also recognize that God brings about reconciliation. Yet now He has reconciled you. How? How does He do this? Through the body of His flesh, through death. Why? To present you holy and without blemish and without reproach. This is, this is good news. God brings reconciliation. Ah, one more thing. One more reality. Here's the reality number three concerning reconciliation. Continuing faith demonstrates reconciliation. Continuing faith demonstrates reconciliation. He starts verse 23 off with, if indeed you continue in the faith. You're in the book of 1 Corinthians already. I want you to turn to chapter 15, please. If indeed you continue in the faith. We're noting this concept of reconciliation and some realities about it. And as we come to this third reality in the book of Colossians, continuing faith demonstrates reconciliation. This is an important concept, friends. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says this, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. You see that next word? If. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you. Unless you believed in vain. He just said, I'm giving you the gospel. He's about to tell them what the gospel is, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and the third day rose again according to the scriptures. Very simple, very clear, very succinct. God has done what we couldn't do for ourselves. Christ has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He died for our sins. But he does give this condition at the beginning of it, if you continue in the faith. What does he mean? Real faith continues. 
Real faith continues. I, I want to say this because this is right for me to say this. This is right for you to hear this. The question about your relationship with God is not about some experience in the past. Real faith continues. That I'm not talking about having this roller coaster ride where we're like, oh, I don't really trust God today, so I'm, I must not be saved. Oh, I trust Him today, I must be saved. And now I'm not, and I must, and I'm not. I'm not talking about that kind of roller coaster ride. I'm talking about not saying, oh yeah, when I was five years old, I did this thing, my mommy reminds me about it all the time, or when I was 27 years old, I went to this church and had this great experience, I lifted my hands and I know, I just know that day I was saved. I'm not talking about some experience. The question about your relationship with God always comes down to, in whom do you trust? Right now. In whom do you trust? Right now. Who do you stake your life on? Right now. If you were to die today, where would you spend eternity? What is your answer based on? Upon whom? Is it because you believe in the author and finisher of your faith, Jesus Christ, that what He's done is enough, that He has accomplished what you could not accomplish? Is your faith fixed on Him? Then you've held on. That's truth. We're not talking about the ebb and flow of life where we struggle about, oh, I don't know where the next dime is going to come from, or I don't know how the sickness is going to turn out. I'm talking about in whom do you trust for your life? This is reality, friends. In two places, Paul is making very clear, some experience in the past is not what tells you whether you are saved. Where do you stand today? In whom do you trust today? Is your life pinned to Him? Have you understood? Do you understand? Do you currently embrace Christ alone as your only means of eternal salvation? That kind of faith, that kind of held on to faith, it's a faith that he brings about. Our faith must be settled. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, and then he says, grounded and settled. Grounded and settled. Well, what does he mean by grounded? Well, the same word grounded is used in Matthew chapter 7. Familiar with the context as Jesus concludes his Sermon on the Mount. He does this illustration. You remember building a house on the sand? Not a good idea. The rain comes. Guess what happens? It collapses because it was built on the sand. It's got no solid foundation. It's just not good. And then he uses the other illustration. Matthew 24 and 20, uh, 7, 24, and 25. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall. Why? Because it was founded on the rock. Founded. Grounded. That's the idea. Grounded. It was Foundation was in the rock. And when we talk about having our faith grounded, we're talking about having it grounded in the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ himself. What is your faith based on? If it's based on you looking at yourself, well, one day you're going to feel saved, and the next day you're going to feel lost. You keep looking at you, you're going to feel like you have a split mind. But if you keep looking at Jesus, 
you will never, you will never, you will never question your salvation if you keep looking at Jesus. Because he doesn't move. He is solid as a rock. He's done it. The, the, the task is done. It is finished. We don't have to wonder whether I am saved or I'm not saved based upon looking at my life. My life does not tell the toll. His life tells the toll. It, is your life tied to His? Your faith must be grounded in Him. And it must be steadfast. Steadfast. We have that same word used in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. The Bible says, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground. There's our word, steadfast. Ground of the truth. And you see I have in parentheses there, support. It has this idea, it's something, it's like a pylon that's holding something up. You know, you're building on this marshland, which I wouldn't recommend under any circumstance, but maybe you have to, and you drive down this pylon, down deep into the, into the earth, and it's, stands up and it holds everything up underneath it. It is supporting the truth. Your faith, it's grounded in Christ and it holds up the truth. Even when your emotions wave. Even when your mind starts to flitter away and think about something else. No, the truth, the faith in Christ, it keeps me grounded. So he tells us, that this faith is a continuing faith. What I'll say then, is when God settles our faith, we are not moved. We're talking about supernatural works here, friends. I'm not looking at you and saying, hey, listen, grab down deep and find some faith. This is a work of God. It's a work of God. And when God settles our faith, it is settled. When God strengthens your faith, it is strengthened. How does he do it? Well, we look at the Word, and we have the Spirit, and we we look at Christ, and we have all these great components, and we're together as a body, and we we build one another's faith. But it's it's supernatural. I I can't give you faith. I can't make a speech good enough to give you faith. It's not possible. I wouldn't even dare to try. Only The only way faith comes is from God. So you look to Him. He says, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Well, what is the hope of the gospel? I wonder. I wonder what the hope of the gospel is. Oh, I wonder if you know every answer to every question, every Sunday school class ever in history. What's the answer? Oh, you got it right. I'm so surprised. Jesus. Take a look at Colossians again. I know that we're in 1 Corinthians. Head back to Colossians chapter 1. We are zeroing in here, friends. He says in verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, not moved away, so no one moves you off of that. What is the hope of the gospel? Well, look down at verse 27. To them, saints, God willed to make known what are the riches of his glory, excuse me, the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, listen, Christ in you, 
who is the hope of glory. Christ in you. He is the hope of glory. When we talk about not being moved away from the hope of the gospel, we're talking about not being moved away from Christ Himself. Hebrews chapter 6 speaks of Jesus being the anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. Do you have that anchor of the soul? Is Christ the anchor that grips you and holds you? True faith continues. Jesus is the blessed hope. Now he goes on to say at the end of verse 23, just so we can make sure we cover it, this gospel you heard, yes, because you can't believe it if you didn't hear it, which was preached to every creature under heaven, well, some translations have that as which was preached, uh, which, which was preached to all creation, so it's like giving more of a geographical span. Nonetheless, any way you try to look at that little section there, it's hyperbole. Hyperbole. You know what hyperbole is? You make this grandiose statement to make a point. Everyone is hungry at 12.07 on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon. Everyone. Is that true? Is everyone hungry? Probably not. But like we can make that statement. It's a generality or a hyperbolic statement. This gospel was heard. It's preached all over the place. And it's what Paul became a minister of. Listen, we were hopelessly lost. We were irreconcilable. We were hostile. We had each gone our own way. God. But God. He, through the sacrifice of his son, has brought about peace. It's not a temporal peace, but a peace that will last throughout all eternity. It's a peace that's settled. It's a relationship that's settled. He has brought us from hostility to peace, or from hostility to holy. God can, is the only one that can do this. He has reconciled the ones who trust in Jesus Christ. I ask you a question. Are you at peace with God? Are you at peace with God? You must ask yourself the follow-up questions. Questions like, well, why am I at peace with God? What is it, or here's a hint, who is it that makes me at peace with God? If you don't know why you're at peace with God, I'm sorry to tell you you're not at peace with God. If you don't have a firm footing upon which you can base that peace with God, you're not at peace with God. And if you're not at peace with God, you're actually hostile toward Him. What you're doing is you're disobeying the gospel. The gospel tells us the answer to how we can be at peace with God. It's through the person of His Son, 
Jesus Christ who has done it all. It's not of works that I have done. It's according to his mercy that he saved me. Let's pray together. Father, you're so good to us. We ask that you would help us to respond rightly to what you've revealed. I pray for anyone here that's never come to the place of peace with you. Even at this moment, they may be hostile toward you. We ask by your grace that you would mercifully change their thinking that they would turn away from their own way and turn to you. We trust you to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.